Welcome to Small Hours Podcast. My name is Al Guevara. Thank you very much for joining us. It is episode number seven. Don't forget, you can always drop us a line at smallhoursemail at gmail.com and find us at thesmallhours.podbean.com. Get to kick off this episode with a little uh, recap of what I did this weekend. Got to head on up to San Antonio for the weekend and visited Fiesta, Texas. It was the first time I've been there for a couple of years. A lot of improvements, more rides, and uh, had the opportunity to be there while uh, Fright Fest was going on. The one ride that we did get on first was the Boomerang. I don't remember if I'd been on that one before. But uh, it was pretty good. You go uh, up backwards for a bit. They drop you down. You go through a couple loops and wind up going to the top at the other end. And then you do the same thing in reverse. As a matter of fact, this is what it sounded like. up so that was pretty good let's kick off the uh, the entertainment news portion of the small hours with news from boxofficemojo.com well it looks like uh, Warner Brothers Pan lived up to the low expectations we're talking about this last episode the Peter Pan origin story directed by Joe Wright opened even worse than even the most dire predictions expected the 150 million dollar production was originally set to be released this summer but was moved to October so reshoots could take place tracking reports had the film opening in the low 20 million dollar range but even that proved too high. Playing in over 3,500 theaters and getting a B-plus cinema score, it could only muster $15.3 million. In the end, Pan is looking at an overall domestic haul in the 32 to $35 million range, so you know that's not good. We can probably go ahead and add this one to the list of films, including Jupiter Ascending, Tomorrowland, and Fantastic Four as big-budget 2015 releases that fail to reach much of a domestic audience. We'll see how it goes uh, worldwide. On a more positive note, Universal's 2015 continues to shine as they ushered the movie Steve Jobs into four theaters in New York and L.A. this weekend, and the results were very impressive. It brought in over $500,000 for a per-theater average of $130,000 plus, the best for any film released in 2015 and third overall for the year behind American Sniper's impressive early-year numbers. Jobs expands further this weekend and nationwide on October 23rd. Another new release this weekend, releasing in only 375 theaters, is Lionsgate's Ladrones. While unable to crack the weekend top 10, the Joe Menendez-directed comedy scored an estimated $1.3 million with a 13th place finish. It's pretty impressive. Moving on to the weekend's holdovers, we scroll up to the top of the box office with the week's number one film for the second week in a row. Not only did The Martian manage a strong holdover number, it dropped only 32%, bringing in an estimated $37 million and its total to over $108 million. When compared to the likes of Interstellar, The Martian is nearly $12 million ahead of where Christopher Nolan's 2014 movie was at the same time in its run to a $188 million domestic haul. It seems The Martian may be on its way to over $200 million should it continue its pace and might even threaten to top Matt Damon's all-time number one film, The Bourne Ultimatum. That one pulled in over $227 million. 
Also holding strong is Hotel Transylvania 2, bringing in an estimated $20.3 million and another second place finish. The 38.8% drop has it still outperforming its predecessor to the tune of $14 million so far. It's already up over $160 million. Expanding to 2,500 theaters this weekend, The Walk appears to be a film that just couldn't muster audience interest as well. Bringing in an estimated $3.6 million, the best this high-wire act could manage was a 7th place finish. Again, the top three were The Martian, Hotel Transylvania 2, and Pan. In at number four was The Intern, Sicario at number five, Maze Runner still in the top six, The Walk, like I said, at number seven, Black Mass at number eight, Everest at number nine, and The Visit still in the top ten. Opening up this weekend is Goosebumps coming in at rated PG. A teenager teams up with the daughter of young adult horror author R.L. Stein after the writer's imaginary demons are set free on the town of Greendale, Maryland. It stars Jack Black and looks like after he and director Rob Letterman uh, hooked up together with Gulliver's Travel, they took a pause for five years and got back together again. So we'll see how it works out. The mixed reviews don't mean much since it's all about whether kids care about the translation. The previews look, I guess, pretty uh, pretty cool for uh, kids. So uh, it looks like it should have a pretty decent outing this weekend. Crimson Peak by Guillermo del Toro, rated R. In the aftermath of a family tragedy, an aspiring author is torn between love for her childhood friend and the temptation of a mysterious outsider. Trying to escape the ghosts of her past, she is swept away to a house that breathes, bleeds, and remembers. It stars Mia Wasikowska, Jessica Chastain, Tom Hiddleston, and Charlie Hunnam. In terms of Guillermo del Toro's projects, there seems to be a bit more discussion about Pacific Rim 2 and its delay. Like, is it even going to get made that there is about this haunted house story right in front of us so we'll see crimson peak seems to be from the same part of del toro's brain that created pan's labyrinth which is awesome and the devil's backbone also out this weekend bridge of spies pg-13 an american lawyer is recruited by the cia during the cold war to help rescue a pilot detained in the soviet union it's directed by steven spielberg starring tom hanks and others let's hope this reunion that finds the director and star in deep cover during the cold war is more than a sturdy espionage tale and that it successfully finds the older movie going audience for which it has been designed I remember last week when we talked about Daniel Craig and uh, his plans post-Spectre, post-James Bond maybe? Here's another story from BBC.com. Apparently, Daniel Craig was just being sarcastic when he said he wanted to move on from playing James Bond. This is according to his co-star Naomi Harris. Daniel lives and breathes Bond, said the actress who's going to be reprising her role as Money Penny in the new film Spectre, which is coming out on November 6th. Time Out Magazine recently quoted Craig as saying that he would, quote, rather slash his wrists, unquote, than make a fifth Bond film. Harris, though, says, look, it's all being blown out of proportion. She was speaking at a promotional event for the technology that features in the film, uh, directed by Sam Mendes, and said, he's so dedicated to his craft and he loves playing Bond, it's easy to take something that someone says in passing and blow it completely out of proportion. I think that's what happened here, so I don't really believe those comments at all. His remarks, of course, were made shortly after Spectre completed shooting in July and, you know, have ignited speculation over who will play Bond if he should relinquish the role. Names like Damian Lewis, Tom Hiddleston, and Benedict Cumberbatch, which honestly, the last two I can't see them portraying Bond, but they have been tossed around as to who might be suggested as potential successors. According to Harris, however, Craig is, quote, the ultimate Bond, and it wouldn't be Bond without him. Spectre, the 24th installment in the official Bond series, will have its world premiere at London's Royal Albert Hall on October 26th. From DigitalSpy.com, after hearing about Ronda Rousey's Roadhouse remake, this one doesn't surprise me. Cult classic action sci-fi Escape from New York is getting a remake. The only good thing about this news is that apparently it's going to be written by the creator of the series Luther. 
The man behind the critically acclaimed BBC crime series, Neil Cross, has a tough gig with this one, as Fox is hoping for a franchise along the lines of the Planet of the Apes series. The Hollywood Reporter announced the news to fans who initially dismissed the remake, but with him on board, it might be time for reappraisal. No director or actor have been attached to the project so far, but fingers crossed that Luther himself, Idris Elba, gets at least a cameo. Maybe he could play the lead role. Snake Plissken, originally done, of course, by Kurt Russell, eyepatch and all. Plissken is a man tasked with rescuing the President of the United States after Air Force One crashes on Manhattan, which has, of course, been transformed into a maximum security prison. Still very much in the planning and writing stages, the Escape from New York remake has no official announced release date. From SlashFilm.com, the latest rumor smashing up the internet suggests that the mightiest and greenest of the Avengers will play a role in the upcoming Thor Ragnarok, lending support to the mighty son of Odin. Specific details are scarce, but here's the gist of it. Mark Ruffalo's Bruce Banner slash the Hulk will be a key player in Thor Ragnarok. Keep in mind, this is just a rumor for now, as Marvel Studios has not confirmed any such thing yet. Speaking of Marvel Cinematic Universe characters wandering into each other's lives, it's no secret that Mike Coulter's Luke Cage will be a supporting player in Jessica Jones, Marvel's direct follow-up to the phenomenally successful Daredevil. Mr. Cage's debut appearance will set up his own Netflix series, expected to drop in 2017. Now, I don't know if you've caught it yet, but the little teaser trailer for the next season of Daredevil came out, and we barely even got a glimpse of Shane as the Punisher. (laughs) So uh, look out for that one on the uh, internet and check it out for yourself. Caught this one on BBC.com. Jennifer Lawrence wrote an essay recently expressing her anger at getting paid less than her male co-stars. In the article on Lena Dunham's site, Lenny, she said she only found out how much less she was being paid when emails from Sony Pictures were hacked last year. She said, look, I didn't get mad at Sony. I got mad at myself. I failed as a negotiator because I gave up early, she said. Remember, Sony's internal computer system was hacked back in November. The leaked emails started making headaches soon afterwards. One of the biggest stories involved emails from Sony boss Amy Pascal that revealed Jennifer Lawrence and Amy Adams were paid much less than their American Hustle co-stars. In her essay, the Hunger Games actress went into more detail about her reasons for not fighting for more money, said... I'd be lying if I didn't say there was an element of wanting to be liked that influenced my decision to close the deal without a real fight. I didn't want to seem difficult or spoiled. At the time, that seemed like a fine idea until I saw the payroll on the internet and realized every man I was working with definitely didn't worry about being, quote, difficult or spoiled. Jennifer Lawrence earned an Oscar nomination for her role in American Hustle, as did Amy Adams, Christian Bale, and Jeremy Renner. She also opened up about how she's treated as a woman in Hollywood. She's like, all I hear and see all day are men speaking their opinions, and I give mine in the exact same manner, and you would have thought I had said something offensive. I'm over trying to find the adorable way to state my opinion and still be likable. Another hack Sony email that made headlines was one in which Angelina Jolie was referred to as a spoiled brat. Lawrence ended her post by saying that after her experience, she wasn't surprised by that email. For some reason, I just can't picture someone saying that about a man. And it's true. I saw the uh, figures, I think they were talking about back-end points, and the guys were getting like 9%, and the ladies were only getting 7%. The interesting thing about that is, apparently the movie was greenlit when she came on board, because at the time, I think... She was like the biggest star, the biggest name on the uh, list to get that greenlit. So her getting less than her male co-stars, even though one of them was Christian Bale, you know, Batman and whatnot. 
I'm sure was like ripping off a band-aid and exposing a wound for the world to see. Another thing that came out of the Sony hacks, of course, we can't forget, is that Spider-Man is now part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe because of that. A uh, little TV news from eOnline.com. Eddie Murphy wants to explain exactly why he opted out of impersonating Bill Cosby during the Saturday Night Live 40th anniversary earlier this year. If you recall, all he did was kind of go out and say thanks, and that's it. It was kind of disappointing. In an interview with the Washington Post, Murphy shared that he felt there was nothing funny about making light of the once-beloved comic legend. He said, It's horrible. If you get up there and you crack jokes about him, you're just hurting people. You're hurting him. You're hurting his accusers. I was like, hey, I'm coming back to SNL for the anniversary. I'm not turning my moment on the show into this other thing. Shortly after the program aired, fellow SNL alum Norm MacDonald revealed via Twitter that he wrote the sketch poking fun at Cosby, but ultimately Murphy grew uncomfortable with the material and opted out of the sketch because he didn't want to kick a man when he's down. In the interview with the paper, Murphy added that he totally understood why the late night show wanted to cover Cosby in a sketch. He said, it was the biggest thing in the news at the time. I can see why they thought it would be funny. And the sketch that Norm wrote was hysterical. After hearing word that Murphy had decided not to perform as Cosby during the anniversary special, the beleaguered comedian spoke out in a statement obtained by NBC. I am very appreciative of Eddie and I applaud his actions, said Bill Cosby. The latest news surrounding Cosby's ongoing legal battles came last week when a judge dismissed his attempts to throw out a libel lawsuit brought by three women who say he sexually assaulted them. The court proceedings will continue within the next few weeks, meaning Cosby can and likely will be deposed. I actually found some gaming news on Forbes.com. EA has announced both the Ultimate Edition for Star Wars Battlefront and the $50 DLC Season Pass. The Season Pass consists of four expansions, quote, filled with new content that will take you to new locations across a galaxy far, far away, unquote. As Jason Evangelo points out, this parallels the DLC pricing for Battlefield, which offers four sets of map packs that come with weapons and other goodies, while neither DICE nor EA have provided details for what exactly that new content is for Battlefront. Probably more maps, maybe some new co-op horde stuff, maybe new game modes and gear. Maps likely the bulk of the content. EA, however, of course, remember, isn't the only company charging big bucks for DLC. This is pretty much exactly what Activision charges for Call of Duty season passes, which sucks. It also is totally, irredeemably insane and greedy. First off, paid map packs break a game's community. Say what you will about Rainbow Six Siege, at least future maps there will be free. Now, without a clever way to offer those maps free to non-paying players, only one player needs to own the map pack for everyone to be able to play, with some randomness involved based on how many players own the map, a game's community is instantly splintered with this sort of thing. Just ask Call of Duty players. Uh, even if you're going to charge for content, 50 bucks just seems like way too much. It's likely that each individual DLC will cost somewhere between 15 and $20. So you're saving, you know, 10 or more dollars. But even still, this means that the complete experience, if you want it all, will cost gamers $110 plus tax. And there's not even a single player campaign. Something that at least Call of Duty has, not to mention Call of Duty DLC, usually includes some form of episodic co-op mode. Look, maybe there will simply be such a staggering amount of really amazing content available that all our doubts will be shattered in an instant, but let's, you know, let's be truthful. It's probably not going to happen. As much as I enjoyed watching my son play Star Wars Battlefront, it just seems like EA is going full dark side on us again. Really disappointing. Metal ahead. 
Please exit now to avoid getting caught in the awesome. Whoa, that was quick. All right, that's your cue. If you came in for the entertainment news, that's your off-ramp. The rest of us, we're going to continue forward. And this time around, we're going to kind of focus a little bit in the South Texas area. Well, not exactly South Texas, but you'll see what I mean. This week, our featured track of the week is by Somewhere in Between, a three-piece alt-rock slash acid pop punk band originally from right here, Laredo, Texas. The band members are Nick Whips on guitar and vocals, David Cisneros on bass, and Cesar de los Santos on drums. The band is now located in the San Marcos slash Austin area and have been together now for eight years. They have three EPs and just finished up and released the latest seven-track CD called Textures which was recorded at Metro 37 Studios in Detroit. Somewhere in between is previewing textures on their main music page, www.jivewired.com slash S-I-B-T-X. Textures is also available at all major downloading sites. You can find them on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash S-I-B-T-X. And uh, they also have songs from their EP, From What We've Evolved From, on Reverb. Somewhere in between is headlined at Odmus Fest here in Laredo. They've played Jambuzi and other festivals. They've been getting airplay on XRP Radio in Birmingham, UK, uh, Valley FM 89.5 in Canterbury, Australia, and on plenty of other radio stations. So they're getting out there. They've played the last seven years at many unofficial South by Southwest showcases and were featured on the Awesome Sound and Captiva slash Jivewired showcases at South by Southwest 2014 and 2015. As a matter of fact, as a result of these showcases, one of their tracks from Textures will be used in an indie movie called Tiramisu for Two, a short film being produced by ITAI Austin and Captiva Entertainment Group. At the present time, the majority of SIB shows are in the college and underground scene, and more shows are planned down the road. Want to thank Ralph for uh, getting this track in my dirty little hands. Now I got to share it with you. So once again, the featured track of the week is by Somewhere in Between, and it's called The World Enters on the Small Hours Podcast with Al Guevara. Check it out.
Folks, that is somewhere in between, originally from Laredo, Texas, now based out of San Marcos in Austin, Texas. Check them out at www.facebook.com slash S-I-B-T-X. If you're a hard rock or metal act that wants to be considered for the Small Hours Podcast, drop us a line at smallhoursemail at gmail.com. That's smallhoursemail at gmail.com. Don't forget, you can always find us at thesmallhours.podbean.com. That's thesmallhours.podbean.com. Also, you can search for The Small Hours with Al Gavada on your iTunes account. Subscribe. There you go. That way you can catch us every single week. Our email, once again, before we head out, is smallhoursemail at gmail.com. That'll do it for episode number seven. Hope you enjoyed it. I had fun making it, and we'll catch you next week. This has been The Small Hours Podcast with Al Gavada. I'm Al Gavada. We'll catch you next time.